Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Welcome. Hour number two of the program. The phone numbers are 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110, and the email is pete at thepetecallendershow.com, and that is Callender with a K. Um, I got a tweet, uh, which, by the way, you could follow me on Twitter, at Pete Callender. Uh, congratulations, WBT Radio, for the great ratings and all of the daytime hosts from early morning to 6 p.m. So if you're not yet listening to the top-rated network, just go to WBT Radio and give it a try. Especially great is noon to 3, the Pete Callender Show. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate the tweet. Um, <laughs> he said, <laughs> it is, it's literally from my dad. Um, he, uh, <laughs> but no, he's referencing the... Uh, the rankings that came out this week, they've been uh, putting out uh, from Barrett News Media over the last four days. They've been putting out all of the rankings, the top 20 rankings for all of the different uh, day parts in mid-sized cities and major cities. And uh, every host here at WBT has been named to the top 20 list. So um, and so I also should point out here, uh, because I am embarrassed I did not, we have also the entire crew of people that make the shows work. Guys like, is it Chris? Chris, right? You go by Chris? Right, yeah, Chris. <laughs> Chris Farrell and uh, Bernie, I think his name is. Bernie Bowles. Uh, but also, what, in the morning, we got John Moore. We got Tommy Freidenberg, right? Uh, who am I missing? George. TJ Boggs, of course. How can I forget TJ? He's been here, like, as long as I have. Actually, longer. He didn't have a timeout. Um, who else? Am I missing anyone? That's every. That's all the producers. Ed Billick. Uh, yeah, so that should be. You also have all you know, Mark Garrison, Brett Jensen, uh, Boomer Von Cannon, Pam. See, now I'm going to forget somebody. Uh, Anna Erickson, Mike Doan. Okay, I think I got everybody. Man, I should not have gone down that path. I should have just stopped at the producers. But uh, thank you to everybody because everybody makes this happen, you know, listeners, the host, the uh, all of the uh, producer crew, the uh, I guess it would be production crew. That would actually, yeah, that would make more sense. Production crew, the news department, and Mike Schaefer, who has built this lineup. He's the programming director here. And for Radio One um, to let him do it because I got to tell you, I know from firsthand experience, a lot of radio companies are not interested and having a lot of local hosts. It's, yeah, they're, they're for various reasons. No, it's not just me that they're not interested in having. It's just, they, they go with a lot of syndicated programming. It's easier, it's cheaper, and all of that. And so uh, I give them a lot of credit. Radio One and Mike Schaefer and Marsha Landis, the, uh, the, 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 the management here has been very, uh, intentional about making this station sound the way it does with local hosts. So uh, it's and it's nice to be recognized for that kind of work that they've been putting in. I mean, I just got here. You know, I was <laughs> I was the last in here. So uh, they were way on their uh, well on their way to building this before I arrived. So just happy to be a part of it again. All right, so let me get to um, a related story about the uh, the fusion, the fusion energy. Uh, experiment that was uh, that was successful. Noah Rothman, a commentary magazine, saying, "Look, in order to make this thing 
work. I mean, yes, it's years down the line, but he's also he, he's also calling for Elon Musk to like stop fighting about Twitter and on Twitter on about everything and like focus your attention on getting us to the moon, man. Like that's what you need to be doing because if we're going to get clean fusion energy, we're going to need tritium. And tritium is really really rare. Tritium is um it's a byproduct of interactions between cosmic radiation and gases in the Earth's upper atmosphere. So, it's yeah, it's difficult to get a lot of it. And you're going to need a lot of it in order to use it for these uh, these fusion reactors. Now, apparently, the, the, the process of the fusion reaction creates tritium as well. well. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand it. But... So you can maybe like use some of that too, but it, it's going to need a lot. But then there's this alternative. Instead of tritium, we could use helium-3, not two, no, not or one. No, helium-3, it's an isotope. I don't even know what that is. I think those were the gloves that Dan Marino used to sell. But isotope helium-3, known to science since at least 1988, it is theoretically ideal for generating power in these types of reactions. It's more efficient. It's theoretically safer slight problem it's really rare as well it floats along with the solar wind and does not survive long inside the earth's magnetic field it is harvestable but it would mean we would have to have these massive solar collectors in orbit or we could collect helium-3 that accumulates on the surface of the moon i say Let's strip mine the moon. It's not doing anything up there. It's not much to look at, right? I heard it on TV a while ago that when we found out it was not made of cheese, we never went back. So what what are the reasons why we shouldn't do it? We already planted our flag. It's ours, right? And China went up there and China took a rock and they brought it back. So they're already, they're on the way to doing this very thing. So now we're in a race with the commies again. History rhymes, right? It doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Here we go. So now we're we're in this race against communists to uh, to take over the moon. Now I don't know what happens if like we get up there and China's up there. Uh, I don't know what happens up there. I hear like no one hears you if you scream in space. So I'm not sure if they get into a fight up there or we're gonna have to like divvy up the moon. Who gets you know who gets the right to do that? And can you buy and sell chunks of the moon? I don't know. So that's why I'm saying we, it's like a land rush. We just got to get up there and start scraping all of the helium-3 out of there. I don't know. Build some storage facilities, right? Okay, while we're at it, probably going to have to set up a colony, right? Because space elevator as well. Do a space elevator. Take everything back and forth. This way you don't have to keep you know, burning the rocket fuel every single time. You could just have like a big uh, cable. You know, you just wire everything up and down. Well, I'm just spitballing here. I'm not a I'm not an expert, but NASA actually has been pursuing and investigating the idea of a space elevator, and it sounds crazy, but there are people who think it could work. In fact, the guy who wrote one second after Dr. Bill Forstjen from Western North Carolina about the EMP that goes off and talks about the impact on Black Mountain and Montreat up there around Asheville, um, Dr. Bill also wrote a book called the space elevator 
and he got to work with all of these NASA people to go over how this would actually work. So they there is a lot of research on this. So I, I think I think the, the the mission is clear. Look, it might also you know kind of you know get us all on the same page. This could be like a unifying thing. Noah Rothman says the moon is soon going to be a business, and businesses should take the lead. Elon Musk and his SpaceX is part of the equation, but so are firms like Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and even defense contractors like Northrop Grumman. It's going to take a lot of years, maybe decades, before we see this net gain fusion reaction that can produce a reliable and stable reaction in commercial reactors, right? It's going to be a while, but it's also going to take years to develop and field a lunar mining operation. And Bruce Willis He needs to tell us all he knows now before it's too late, you know? I hear he's in failing health. It's very sad, but if we're going to set up a mining operation on the moon, I'm saying we get as much info from him as we can before it's too late. Also, I mean, how how cool would that be to look up at the moon and see see like a city up there? That'd be pretty wild, like Star Wars kind of stuff. But this leads us to another piece in the Financial Times by Edward Luce. The American left's chronic NIMBY problem. You know what NIMBY stands for? Not in my backyard. So that's one acronym. There's another one related. It's called YIMBY, which is yes in my backyard. But NIMBY is the big one. There's another one called BANANA. And that stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. (laughs) BANANA. Okay, so these are the two acronyms. And this is a larger piece talking about sort of the the philosophical incoherence of the left when it comes to development and, and clean energy. But here is the nugget of good news is that an unholy alliance of left wing Democrats and Republicans sank a bill that would have cut through red tape to ensure clean energy projects can go ahead. The Republican motive was obvious. Kill anything with Joe Biden's name on it. The Democratic left's motive was self-defeatingly familiar, which is, quote, if it's not perfect, we're against it, which, of course, is always the framing. This guy's of the left. This author is of the left. But I think he accurately defines this issue, this nimbyism on the left. I saw it in Asheville. I see it here in Charlotte, and this is the problem that we as Americans are facing with our energy production. It's the same thing. Talk 1110-993-WBT. Joe Biden's clean energy bill rightly hit the headlines when it was passed in August, writes Edward Luce over at the Financial Times. He is of the left, so he was very excited about it. It was America's biggest move by far to tackle global warming. Um, Ed, I don't know if you can call it global warming anymore. I think climate change or as was used in that U.S. Senate race in Colorado, the weirding of the weather. I think those are the only appropriate terms now. Because if it gets too cold, that too would be climate change. And you can't, you cannot claim global warming is causing the cold. Okay? All right. 
Well, because people don't understand. Anything that the climate does is our fault. That's the takeaway. Okay. He says, alas, there were few headlines, though, last week to mark the torpedoing of that bill's substantive hopes. An unholy alliance of left-wing Democrats and Republicans sank an accompanying bill that would have cut through red tape to ensure the clean energy projects can go ahead. The Republican motive was obvious. Just kill anything with Joe Biden's name on it. The Democratic left's motive was self-defeatingly familiar. If it's not perfect, we are against it. Which, of course, like, so even in the criticism of the left, right, there is still, there is still, like, this elevation of moral superiority involved, right? It's like, they just, they care too much, you see. They wanted it to be perfect, and it's their true failing. But anyway, this trait, he says, is a feature, not a bug, of America's progressive left. In this case, the 72 opposing Democratic lawmakers, including Vermont's Bernie Sanders, objected that the bill would also have enabled a West Virginia natural gas pipeline, which means fossil fuels. Exactly. Yet it would also have shortened the Kafka-esque delays that stand in the way of building the new solar plants, clean tech transmission lines, and wind farms funded by last summer's law. So here's the problem is that they got their law passed and they got uh, money for it. But now they're like, oh, man, this takes forever to build. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This is what conservatives have been saying about, well, like everything you build, right? All the red tape, the government regulation, it takes forever. And so there was this effort to try to like do an end run around all of the other regulatory hurdles for these projects and it failed. Okay. So this is the part that he's lamenting. Um, the, the net impact of the permitting bills demise is that it's now going to be all but impossible for Joe Biden to meet his target of 50% U S net carbon reductions by the end of this decade. This pinpoints two problems with America's left. The first is an instinct for moral gesture over practical action. Yes. Style over substance. It's about the virtue signaling. I've gone over this many times over the years. The dopamine hit in the brain, it comes from the knowledge that somebody has seen or heard you say something that you believe is virtuous. Not in actually performing the virtuous thing. No. That's not important. What's important to get the the warm fuzzies. In order to get that, to to get the feel-good... You have to know somebody heard you say it. You have to know somebody read, you know, uh, read, read what you wrote. That's what gives you the juice. This is why the, the left is constantly in pursuit of new programs and services, but have very little interest in monitoring the, the spending on those services and programs. Theoretically, you would think, right, that if you're an advocate for a new program to help people, you would be the biggest, uh, uh, you know, the most frugal, let's say, with every single dollar. Because any dollar in that program or service that is wasted is it means that you're not helping the people that you obviously cared so much about that you got this thing passed, right? You would be the most focused member of Congress or activist or something. You would be so hyper-focused on making sure that all that money went to the people that you wanted to help. But they're not. (laughs) They're not. They're like, hey, I got this bill passed. Let's spend some money. And they're like, hey, that program or service isn't really working. And what do they say? Well, let's throw some more money at it. 
rather than say, what the hell has been going on over there? Oh, I'm so mad. I want to see the books. I got to make sure every single dollar is being spent on those people and helping those people that I promised I was helping. But that's not where the juice comes from. It's not where the feels reside. It's not what gets you the dopamine hit. The first instinct is for moral gesture over practical action. So that's that's one problem as he identifies it with the American left, particularly when it comes to um, climate change, energy production, that sort of thing. That's number one. What's number two? Glad you asked. with America's left regarding energy development and production. The first is an instinct for moral gesture over practical action. The second, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This is Edward Luce writing at the Financial Times, FT.com. Not a right-winger here. Um... He says the not-in-my-backyard instinct, so this is NIMBY, not-in-my-backyard. But backyard's one word, isn't it? So why would it? Anyway, not-in-my-backyard instinct is hidden everywhere in plain sight. It explains why ultra-liberal San Francisco's housing is unaffordable, right? Rich people don't want their property values marred by construction or their neighborhoods filled with the wrong people. Oh, yes, I mean, they... They get around, you know, the obvious discriminatory motivations behind uh, uh, their actions by saying, oh, it's simply to maintain the character of the neighborhood. Right. You've heard this. You've heard this explanation. It's in every single rezoning petition almost. Right. Anywhere somebody comes in, they're like, we want to build housing here. We want to build something here. And what do the neighbors always say? Well, it's not in keeping with the neighborhood aesthetic. Right. And then usually, in, like in North Carolina, the city councils will say, well, we can't force a builder to make it look like anything. You're not allowed to, del- you're not allowed to deny a rezoning petition or a development based on what materials are, they're going to use and, you know, the architectural sight lines and such, right? You can't, you can't do that. But neighbors, a lot of times, it's just something that they say when what they are saying is, I don't want anybody near me. I don't want a new development. I don't want anybody else here. I'm going to pull the ladder up. You know where this was the worst? Asheville. Asheville. Eight years I watched city council meetings and people coming before council, and whether it was redevelopment projects or anything, like anything at all, and they'd all start their public comments with something very similar, such as, so I moved here eight years ago, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> right? They always started that way. They would always tell you that they are new arrivals within the last 10 years. And when I got here, it was this. And now this action you're getting ready to take is going to make it something else. And I don't like it. I want it to be what it was when I moved here. You know, meanwhile, the people that are actually from Asheville, like the seven of them that are left, right, the the people that are from Asheville, they're looking at everybody going like, this isn't what we had before y'all got here either. So like my producer back in Asheville for the, sh- when I was doing the show and working up there, Tank was his name. I mean, his real name is Robbie, but he went by Tank. I did not give him that nickname. He had that nickname. He's doing PhD weight loss 
Yeah, he's looking looking great. He's way healthier now, too. So I, I wonder if he has to get a different nickname. I gotta need to ask him that. I gotta ask him if he's gotta change his nickname now that he's dropped like I think he's lost more than I have. He I mean he was a big guy, so he I think he's probably lost about hundred pounds by now. Um anyway, uh Tank was from Asheville. And you know, people complained about them getting a you know some restaurant or something getting put in. And he was like, "Look, man, it's, there were, used to only be one place you could eat. Like there were, I, he grew up in Asheville in like the eighties, the nineties, or whatever. And he's he said there there was only one place. There's Olive Garden or Applebee's. Like that was it. That was the only place that, that was open <laughs> for dinner on a Sunday evening. Um, you people who like to go tubing down the French Broad, you ever done that? Yeah, locals don't do that. You know why? Because they know what's in that river. It ain't good. It ain't good. And now, with Asheville's permissive attitude towards all of the homeless encampments that are all along the river, guess where the homeless are defecating? That's right, the river. Exactly. It's right there. Oh, they bathe in it, too. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, and they pee in it, and they use it uh, to, to cook with. But, yeah, the locals don't, they don't get in that river. <laughs> at least according to Tank. And he was my official local of the show. <laughs> so anytime I had a question about the way things used to be, I would always ask Tank. And he says, I ain't getting in that river. It's nasty. Um, so this is part of the problem, nimbyism. The, the folks in Asheville, they're like, I got my slice of heaven. I don't want anybody near me. You don't get to build what you want. You know, you know what they say? They, they use Charlotte as an insult. Did you know that? They call Charlotte... They use it as a slur. There's a there's a Fuddruckers. There's another one of those names. Be very precise when pronouncing that word on radio. There's a there was a, a development up there. It's like on uh, it's on the way to um, the Grove Park Inn. You know the fancy Grove Park Inn. And you take that road, and there is a Fuddruckers on the left side, I believe. And they could not make it work, whatever, because you know buy local. Anyway, so. They want to tear it down. They want to put in, you know, retail on the bottom, maybe a restaurant or something, and then housing above it, mixed use. Very similar to what you see all around Charlotte. And so they put out the renderings, whatever. And there's a campaign being led by the people who live in this neighborhood, which is like uber wealthy, like, and which means that you're not from Asheville. Like people who are that rich, they, they've either been there for like 40 years before anything had any value or – that's their second or third or fourth or fifth home like that they own concurrently, right? There's, it's like the number one place for second homes in North Carolina. So you have all these people with all this extra money or they sell in New York and California, uh, these lefties and they all come to Asheville and they're all in this area around Grove Park. And, and so they, they went out and got signs made up and it said, don't Charlotte our Asheville. That's their, that's their rallying cry, which, which as a resident who has spent, more time in Charlotte than Asheville. But I will tell you, Asheville could use a little charlatan. They really could. <laughs> because what they, uh, oh, it's gritty. No, no, those are hypodermics and feces. It's, it's just nasty. That's not gritty. That's just dirt. That's gross. That's fecal matter. Yeah. Anyway, nimbyism, this instinct is uh, hidden in plain sight, says Edward Luce. 
San Francisco's housing is unaffordable because of this. Rich people do not want their property values marred by construction or their neighborhoods filled with the wrong people. It explains why residents of the wealthy Holiday Island of Nantucket, I know a guy from, the, uh, never mind, um, blocking an offshore wind farm on the flimsy claim that it would disturb the local whales. Which is weird, because I thought, like, Ted Kennedy died a while ago. That's too soon. Is that too soon? Okay. The reality is they just don't want their view spoiled. And you will hear this argument, by the way, from people in Asheville when they oppose the developments that are tall. They will say the same thing. They call them view shed, like a watershed, but it's a view. Now, cities have air rights above their buildings and such, and you can purchase them. But what the neighbors say is that I look above your building to see the mountains. And if your building gets taller, then I can't see them. And so you're infringing on my right to see that view. Now, I'm not going to pay you (laughs) to preserve that right. And I'm going to lobby against any uh, effort you have to try to build tall buildings. Because you're going to disrupt my view. You're going to block my view. I won't be able to see the beautiful mountains. I am sympathetic to your lack of a a visual. I get that. But if you're against sprawl, which they are too, they don't want any development going outwards because, you know, Gaia Earth doesn't like the car and the belching of the uh, uh, exhaust. So they don't want more traffic. They don't want more roads. They want more bike lanes, but no more roads. They want to actually turn one of the interstates. Uh, they want to put bike lanes on one of the – I'm not kidding. Anyway, they're crazy. They're, they're nuts. That's actually their inability to figure out how to fix their mangled malfunction junction interstate system up there. That's the reason we got the money to finish our loop here in Charlotte. <laughs> so yay them. <laughs> so you've got this anti-sprawl idea, anti-growth idea, but – they don't want to grow out, but you say, all right, well, we'll grow up and we'll, we'll go taller. Like, no, you can't do that either because now you're blocking my view. It's insanity. But it's all masking this nimbyism or this bananaism, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. That's their position. That is their actual position. They just don't want to have to admit it. So they dress it all up with these other things, these other arguments like the whales. Or, oh, you don't want to put in the, the, the windmills off the, off of my coastline. Now, we'll put them off your coastline. <laughs> we'll send them down there. We'll put them off your coastline so I don't have to see them. Right. Bananaism and nimbyism. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. A message here from Matt. Pete, your discussion today reminded me of a recent podcast episode from the Political Orphanage with Andrew Heaton. You may recognize him from work with Reason Magazine, previously with The Blaze. I do. I think I actually, I may have had him on the show at one point. Anyway, in this episode, uh, he interviews a left-leaning environmental activist who argues in favor of eliminating something known as the NEPA permit, or the National Environmental Policy Act permit, the NEPA, or the NEPAP, I guess it would be. The NEPAP? I mean, if I put the P for permit in with the NEPA, then it's the NEPAP, which sounds funnier. Anyway, since its inception in the 1970s, the NEPAP review 
has ballooned from 10, uh, 10 or 15 pages or so. It's now in the thousands of pages. And it actually causes huge delays in green energy projects, which otherwise pass through environmental review rather easily. You hate to see it. <laughs> Jay says, Pete, everything is style over substance, and it has been for a while. I even saw it when I was in the Navy in the 80s when my skipper would not let my guys work in their T-shirts on deck when it was over 100 degrees outside. Uh, Red Tape Pete, uh, just listening to your conversation on the radio. I thought if I thought I'd give you some quick, short background. Oh, hang on a second. I don't know. Am I allowed to say? All? Okay, you don't say not to say. I'm not going to name you. But this is Bill. I'm retired from Duke, and uh, a fellow coworker also retired and went to work for the Electric Power Research Institute. Um, turns out, based on what he's discovered, there's so much red tape with the DOE implementation that they're trying to pass the Santa Claus giveaway money down to the Electric Power Research Institute to help enable this. In short, it was another one of those bills passed with no actual thought. It just felt good. Love your show, and congratulations to you and WBT on your successes. Again, enjoyed meeting you at the Mallard Creek Barbecue. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, the so to your point here, there is uh, in this article in the Financial Times, where is it? Uh, under a 1970 Environmental Policy Act, I bet it's the same thing, projects take an average of 4.5 years to complete their impact assessments. That's before litigation. <laughs> so four and a half years to complete the environmental impact assessments. Right? Then there's also the community participation component, which has been captured by wealthy retirees and lawyers with time on their hands. Three Mile Island happened in 1979. Remember all the people that died from Three Mile Island? You remember that? No, you don't, because no one died from it. No one, no one died. Washington's Nuclear Regulatory Commission since then has made it nearly impossible to construct a new nuclear power plant. Just 10 Americans have ever been killed by civil nuclear power. And you know how many of those died from radiation? None. Last year, tens of thousands of Americans did die from air pollution. Again, I told you, this is a guy at the Financial Times. He's of the left. Okay. It is beyond obvious that the U.S. must expand nuclear power if it is to reach net zero. Wind and sun on their own will not be enough. U.S. progressives correctly insist that global warming poses, quote, the greatest existential threat to humanity. That line should be extended, though. You should add on to it, okay? So instead of just ending with a period, it should say, is the greatest existential threat to humanity except for our wildly overdone fears of nuclear meltdown and not if, da if it damages our property values. <laughs> so uh, it's right. Global warming is going to kill us all, and we need to do everything we can to avoid it unless, of course... I have to look at some windmills off of the coastline at my summer home. Right. Then that's it's that's too much. That's too much. Speaking of global warming, all the airplanes, I mean not the private ones that they fly around to go to their global warming conferences in, but the ones that we fly, get this. Airlines are lobbying for a change 
to uh, federal regulations. They want to go from two pilots in the cockpit down to one. It seems like a bad idea. We'll get into that in a minute. 